This week on the Boag World Show, we consider the post-click experience and how to integrate testing into your projects. This week's show is sponsored by Balsamic and Full Story. Welcome to the Boag World Show, a podcast about all aspects of conversion rate optimization, user experience, and digital strategy. My name is Paul Boag, and joining me on this show, as every show, is Marcus Livington. Hello, Paul. Hello, Marcus. Trying to type and talk you at the same time, failing. Don't. <laughs> what, do you know that people, get, the, the listeners, get stroppy when we spend too much time with the chat room people? So it's like I feel I feel like it's it's turned into the Montagues and the whatever it was in in um, Romeo and Juliet. Oh, blimey! The two you're, sides you're showing your showing your academic past there, Paul. Well, not really. <laughs> I only managed the Montagues. I couldn't remember who the other lot were, so I'm not not that. Uh, uh. And that's only from the the. Um, what was it? The the DiCaprio version of it. That one, you know, the modernised version. Yeah. Oh, it wasn't there. And there was a... Capulets, that's it. There was, Thank there you. Was a, there was a Western version of it as well, sort of, you know, cowboy families. And, pff, well, ah, I can't remember what they were called. Well, don't talk about Westerns. Why not? Because we are, we are teetering on the edge of the release of Red Dead Redemption 2. So if anybody talks about Westerns, I get overexcited. And I've been watching loads of Western films to get me in the mood, like Hateful Eight and The Magnificent Seven. And so I'm like, I'm ready to go. Very different style of Western, those two. Yeah, they are. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Hateful Eight is interesting, isn't yes. it? It, was, it went from being really, really slow in places to then gratuitously violent in, in sudden bursts. Yeah. It was, it was a good film. I enjoyed You'll it. You'll never beat The Good, The Bad and The Ugly for me. One of my favourite no, films of all good. time, in fact. And I have to say, when I said The Magnificent Seven, I was talking about the remake with Denzel Washington in. Oh, I don't think I've seen that. Did you? It's, it's good. It's not bad, actually. It's not bad. Obviously, it's not as good as the original. Goes without saying. Yul- but it's still not a bad film. I haven't seen that in years. Got- Yul Brynner was in the original, yeah. wasn't he? Along with a lot of other yes. very famous people. Oh, yes. I do like a Western. Well, it, it's a good a- one. It, it's a bit like that. So it's, a, it's got Chris um, Pratt in... From Guardians of the Galaxy and various other famous faces that you would recognise if you saw them, that whose names all escape me. So there you go. Me too. Blokes, mostly. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. All blokes, I think. Was it all blokes? Oh, I think so. Was, I can't remember anyway. now. Right. But uh, did, what, I, what I did quite enjoy it, I, I, and this, uh, this is the kind of comment that may get me into hot water, but was the contrast between how Hateful Eight approached the black role of Samuel L. Jackson compared to Magnificent Seven and the role that Denzel Washington played, right? Mm-hmm. Because but, Hateful Eight is, is very real to the time, isn't it? And it's quite jarring in places, yes. the way they talk about Samuel L. Jackson. While Magnificent Seven just ignored it. Right. You know, Denzel Washington 
there was no reference to, to his ethnic background or anything like that. So, it, you know, it was quite interesting to see those two different approaches to the to the issue. Well, you, um, and yeah, I say, it, which I haven't got a yeah, problem with either approach. If you're telling I a story, you can do what you like. It's um, yeah, it's li- license, yeah. isn't it? The license yeah. to do that. The only time it annoys me is in Doctor Who, right? <laughs> when they travel back in time, because in Doctor Who it depends on who's written the story as to how they deal with it. There's no consistency. So in in some episodes, they completely ignore colour, which is fine. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in other episodes, they reference it, which is also fine, but not in the same continuity in the same universe. It annoys me. But then Doctor Who was never big on continuity anyway, so not that big a deal, was it really? Tom Baker was my last Doctor Who anyway, so... and you said you were going to try starting watching with Jodie Whittaker. Have you not done that? I did, didn't I? No. Yeah. That's the short answer. Two episodes have come out. Yeah, I, I could, I could catch up, couldn't I? Yeah, give it a go. Yeah. It's, it's, it's. I mean, don't get me wrong. It, it's family entertainment. Yeah. So it's the kind of thing you should be able to sit down and watch with your nine-year-old. So don't expect anything to make any kind of sense. Um, but it's kind of fun. I kind of enjoy it. And I think she's brilliant. I'm really enjoying her. Okay. Far, by far the best doctor for me since um, a Tennant, David Tennant. So, um, yeah, I'm enjoying that. Cool. She's brilliant. What else was I going to talk about? I, I don't know. But it's oh. only been two days since we last spoke to each other. Nothing has happened at all. I know. At all. Nothing. Zero. Actually, for me, quite a lot's happened. I've been very busy. I've been busy. Does that count? <laughs> oh, well, I was at a conference yesterday, which was a really good conference. Um, it was uh, UX Bournemouth, um, which I know it sounds a contradiction in terms Bournemouth and good, but it was actually <laughs> nice really enjoyable. It's a lovely beach. Nice it? beach. Yeah. yeah, nice beach. Ed lives in Bournemouth. So we had... So that, who lives? Ed does. Ed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we had, um, we had a, it was a really good conference, lots of really good speakers, uh, very user research focused, which was interesting. I was a bit of the odd one out speaking there um, because, you know, I don't like people. So, you know, speaking to users is, <laughs> is an abomination as far as I'm concerned, but they go, apparently, apparently it's a thing you're supposed to do. Who knew? Anyway, what was really interesting was that there was um, one particular speaker um, a lady called uh, Brooke Baldwin, right, who works for Facebook. Ooh. And she didn't talk any theory at all. She just talked about what she does, right, on a day-to-day basis. Mm. And to be honest, if I did what she did, I would go around telling the world what, she, what I do as well. Because essentially, she does user research for Facebook in emerging markets, which essentially means she spends her life traveling around the world, going to places, you know, really exotic, exciting places and doing user research. So that's what she talked about. And it was brilliant. It was so interesting. How do you get that job then? But, uh, well, <laughs> to be honest, I think it's quite a hard job to be fair to her because, you know, I mean, they have to worry about things like, is it safe to go to this country or will we be kidnapped? Ooh, yeah, well, no, I'm um, my job. No, no. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And 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 they, they end up working really long days, you know, 12 to 15 hour days and that kind of stuff. But still, you get to go to the really exciting places at the same time. So, no, the, the reason that I bring this up mm. is um, 
because it ties in very nicely with something that we were talking about in the chat room uh, in Slack, which is what should we do on next season of the podcast? One of the suggestions that somebody made, and I'm sorry, I can't remember who it was because, you know, people again, um, was um, that we do a season on, you know, what exactly is it that you do every day, you know? Where we talk to different people and just talk to them, ask them, okay, no, no theory, no kind of how, what do you do when you go into work every day? You know, what actually happens? And I think that would be a really interesting season um, because there's so many people like, well, well, like Brooke, you know, I wouldn't know what a, a user researcher does on an average day because mm. it's such a specialist discipline or, or even somebody, you know, some of these more high, high profile people, um, you know, uh, uh, like, I don't know, Jeremy Keith, for example. What the hell does he do all day? Do you know what I mean? And uh, I, 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 that sounded very judgmental <laughs> and it wasn't meant to at all because you could, uh, you could, you could say the same thing about me. I mean, what do I do all day? It's because, so I think it's quite an interesting series. Talk, talk to people that have either a very unusual roles or very specific roles within a, uh, an organization or alternatively people that that um you know maybe have reached a point in their career where it's all a little bit woollier what they do and i think i think that might make a good season what do you reckon uh, absolutely spot on i mean i couldn't answer that question no it would have to be yeah i know because every day's different it totally it? is so yeah but we could even talk about that and that's okay to talk about yeah. but you you know but what you don't do is because these people that you hear a lot from and i include myself in this we talk a lot about theories and principles and what other people should be doing Mm. but we don't talk a lot about what you know what i'm doing Mm. you know what when i finish doing this podcast now what am i going to do um and the answer is i'm gonna have probably quite a difficult conversation with some uh, a management team about the some design prototypes that i've created for them you know uh, but nobody knows that, and I just think it would be really good. Okay, and it sounds I'm going to like do a stakeholder interview. That's the next thing I'm going to do over the phone. Ah, there you go. But it does See? changes. It varies a lot. Interesting. I've known you for t- sorry. Reading out from the uh, chat. Channel. Yeah, this is this is Ryan in the <laughs> chat room being a cheeky bugger. <laughs> yeah, who's he's known me for ten, ten years, years, and he still has no idea what I do. <laughs> Fair enough. Hands up. <laughs> so then I tell you what, Ryan, we need to do this uh, this um, season of the show. Yeah, and Ryan, you can come on to the show, and you can interview me about what I do. How about that? Does that sound like a good idea? I think that that'd be great. Get Ryan back on. It's been a long time since we've had him uh, on the show. Yeah, I that. thought you would be. Yeah, so let's do that. All right, so that's next season sorted out, which is really good. Lovely. But we haven't finished this season yet. We're only on episode 12, Mm -hmm. and there are 15 episodes in the season. So, Marcus. Hello. I know it's uh, it's a bit bit you know difficult for you because you had that means only two days ago you had to come up with some content and now you've had to come up with some more mm. but do you have a thought for the day reverend lillington <laughs> i do I, I i'm not the first reverend lillington that's a lovely thought isn't it uh, oh it, you're not i oh, know because your dad yeah, is isn't he that was he's not been with us oh, right. he's not been with us for a long time um oh i did marcus i should have known that that's terrible isn't it? <laughs> that's okay um 
Sorry, you've, you've thrown me by being caught. Oh, sorry. Rev- Reverend Lillington. What was I going to say? Reverend. I, Reverend Lillington. Lillington. Yeah, still can't say my name. Even I can't say it. You are both most, you're probably the most irreverent person I know, but we'll, we'll <laughs> skate over that. <laughs> um, I had, I, I did realise at about one o'clock that I needed to come up with uh, some content <laughs> for the show. I've been pretty good so far and sort of, I have like a, a weekly reminder on a Friday afternoon think of something um and then i, I realized because we did this two days ago oh dear i need to come up with something so yes. uh, and then i realized i was right in the middle of planning a site review so i thought well, i'll talk about that because it's the top of my mind yes um absolutely and that they can be a bit daunting um so i thought i'd share my thoughts on them I, i'm at that stage of oh god i've got 50 pages to write or however many it's going to be uh what am i going to yeah. talk about so, but I have, I've got a bit of a structure going and I've had some thoughts on it and I thought, well, I'll just share my general approach to how I do these kind of reviews. Uh, mm. So just various points. First one being don't state the bleeding obvious because uh, you're wasting everybody's time by doing that. It's, uh, it, for example, if a site isn't responsive, don't spend ages showing how it doesn't show, how it doesn't work on mobile um everyone including the client knows that that needs to change so don't spend 10 pages Mm -hmm. showing them how bad it is on mobile uh i suppose another example would be something like broken site search yeah okay but you're not saying you shouldn't mention it at all um because what's obvious to one person isn't necessarily obvious to another i mean i've already written the intro to 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 this uh, review that i'm doing at the moment and i've kind of covered all the things that we don't really need to talk about a lot in the introduction oh okay so yeah you do need yeah to yeah them, yeah yeah but don't linger on them you need to, you need to i yeah. guess you need to focus on stuff that is maybe more controversial that that needs you need to persuade people needs to change uh, and yes. find evidence for and that kind of thing uh, mm. Another thing that I found useful lately, and this is uh, Chris started doing this. Chris always comes up with good ideas, and I steal them. Um, get basically get help from somebody else in the team, um, not not just from somebody when you finish writing it and get them to review. It. I mean, a second pair of eyes right at the start, just firing through the site, just bullet pointing that I don't like that, all oh, that's wrong, yeah. da, 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 da. and that can maybe show you stuff that you hadn't thought of. So that's a really useful thing. I've got Lee doing that um, right as we speak. Well, he might be doing that, or who knows? So hang on a minute. That sounds very much like you're basically getting Lee to do your work for you. No, because it's very, uh, I, it's a very kind of simple, just a, a kind of a, a Google sheet of just kind of brain dump for go through the site and brain dump some stuff no real thought behind it it's just to kind of give me pointers of things i.e to kind of uh, validate the the points that i'm going to talk i've already decided i'm going to talk about or show me stuff that i hadn't thought of so it's just getting two eyes on it it's really really useful okay fair i'll let you off thank you paul um uh, the next one would be have a have at least a brief look at analytics we tend to do separate more focused analytics reviews but i would still have Mm -hmm. a little look at analytics for a kind of standard site review um Mm -hmm. uh, this is more how i work and it might not work for other but i i kind of do a mixture of planning so i try to get a kind of table of contents you know the structure of the the document but 
alongside a bit of just going for it sort of because you yeah. tend to find that if you start reviewing a site you'll go down rabbit holes and why not just you, you might find yeah. some gems doing that um so what are the type of things that i like to look at um would internal focus is a classic uh when you're trying to be more user focused um a general lack of focus what's the site for um because quite often mm-hmm. websites don't, um, uh, don't it's not obvious what they're for information architecture um and navigation that kind of thing can often be confusing and broken generally um copy is a really big one things density scannability readability a focus on users that kind of stuff calls to action accessibility engagement and often an overlooked one is performance uh, so yes. they're, they're the kind of things that I'll, I'll, I'll try and focus or general uh, subjects. Um, I think it's really important to show real examples of what you're talking about. The, the, the old adage of a picture is better than a one, one picture is better than a thousand words. Um, so yeah, don't just prattle on in, in text, provide real examples. And finally, uh, probably the most importantly, uh, or the most important thing is don't just state what's wrong, make recommendations about how the different wrongs can be yeah. righted. <laughs> And that's it yeah. for this week. Yes. I mean, do you ever... Sometimes I find myself... Um, I wrote a review for a large multinational e-commerce company mm-hmm. um, a while back. And um, I, that went in a very different direction. Because I didn't end up talking that much about the user interface because the user interface was competent you know what i mean yeah. it was it was okay but what quickly became apparent from talking to the client and um the looking at the site is that they had underlying organizational issues that were you know they weren't doing any multivariate testing they weren't um evolving the site in any way they just wanted to hire me as an outside expert to come in and tell them all the answers instead of having a process to create those answers. Mm. So that went in a very different direction, that one, because I ended up talking more about what was going on behind the scenes than actually the website itself. Governance review, so do you, that would be, wouldn't it, really? Yeah, do, do, you, do you always separate that out as a separate thing, or do you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, that's understandable. And I, I think mm. that it might be, when you, once you've delivered this review, because this is nearly always the first thing, uh, or first, one of the first um, deliverables in a project... Um, it w- it might point to you as I've just said, make recommendations. In making those recommendations, people might go, "Oh, yeah, but we can't do that because of X, Y, or Z." Yes, and at that point, yeah. you can then say, "Well, you need to fix that." So, yeah. yeah. Paul's asking in chat room: Do you actually explain? You know, when you when you talk about things being broken or wrong, that's why you need you, you need real examples. You put a just. A f- yeah, but do you put a justification in as to why you consider that wrong and it kind of explain behind it? Uh, just that I'm right and everyone else is wrong, usually. Uh, no, I, no, yeah. I, do, that, I do. That's I, what I, I presume. I do try to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you need to, it needs to be, a site review needs to be as much educational as anything else, Paul. Um, so it should absolutely explain what's going on behind the scenes as well. Yeah, don't assume anything. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. Yes, Ryan. Are these reviews paid for by the client? Mm. Absolutely, Ryan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They take yeah, and days. that's a big mis- 
Yeah, and that is a big mistake I see people making all the time, is that they don't charge for this kind of stuff. They're, they're kind of giving it to the client for free. And, you know, but... Oh, and that means that it's kind of you're not spending that long on it and mm. you're, you know, it, no, well, charge. In, in, well, that, that's, can I, I'll come back to that as another thought for the day. Brian's asked, how do you convince them to invest the time? That's a, that's a, a yes. long answer that I'll come back to. But I would say we will do kind of mini reviews as part of proposals. That's something, you know, to sort of show the kind of depth that we might get into, um, but not, not a complete site review, no. That's something that should yeah. be, should be paid for. Okay, we 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 probably should move on, as there are many other things. Although I would agree that's one worth coming back to, Marcus, because convincing now. people, yeah, and what you know, convincing people to do them, and then what you do for free and what you don't do for free, I think, mm. is also another interesting subject we could get into in all kinds of areas, not just in site reviews. <laughs> Right, let's talk about Balsamic. Um, uh, I have spent most of my day today talking about what we do in Envision, which is a, some people see as a Balsamic competitor, um, but it's absolutely not. Um, uh, something like Envision is an incredibly powerful tool that you can use to easily um, show clients' designs, and they, you know, you produce your designs in in either their Envision Studio or in Sketch or Photoshop or whatever else. You then put them into um, uh, in, Envision, and you can kind of join up those things. That is absolutely invaluable for testing high pro, uh, pro, uh, fidelity prototypes. But it is not so good for those very early conversations um, where you want to start brainstorming with clients and you want to start wireframing things up in a very, very quick, very, very simple way. Um, now, obviously, ideally, might, one might argue that you sit down together in a meeting and you do that. And absolutely, that is, is invaluable to do and you should do that. Um, however, that's not always possible um, and that sometimes you need to do those kinds of things remotely. And Balsamic is incredible for doing that kind of remote, very quick and dirty wireframing. However, I would argue that even if you are sitting in a room with a client, um, some client, a lot of clients do not like drawing. They don't like putting stuff on a board. They feel intimidated by that. Um, so actually giving them a tool that is just so intuitive to use where they can drag and drop a calendar widget onto the page and they can drag and drop this element onto the page, that is invaluable. And that's obviously what Balsamic does incredibly well. On top of which, um, you can move those elements around. So you're not constantly redrawing stuff all of the time. So definitely give Balsamic a go. Um, for that very early wireframing and prototyping, working collaboratively with clients, with developers, with, you know, other people that aren't so comfortable with design tools. Um, you know, as, as a professional designer, sure, you're going to want to be in Sketch, you're going to want to be using Envision or these various other tools out there. But when you deal with clients and, and colleagues, you're going to want something much, much more um, intuitive, much more basic, uh, much faster to work with. I think that's you true. You can try that. Yeah, it is. We, we've I don't make this stuff we, up, Marcus. All right, I'm, I'm backing, backing up what you're saying with a, a real example, as I was referring to earlier. We, we, I can't remember the last time we did any drawn wireframes. 
can't it's, mm. it's just it's not a thing and the the point you made about the fact that you can't replace stuff easily i think is is the key yeah. one because you can go because you often start wireframing something and people go well that's not right so you need to change it and it's like well if, what yeah. do i do throw it in the bin uh it's just more yeah. efficient exactly um, right. Okay. So to give Balsamic a go, you can get a 30 day free trial by going to balsamic.cloud. If at the end of that 30 days you think, oh, this is good. I'd like this. Um, then when you sign up for the billing, if you use the code BOAGWORLD, you'll get the first three months of that, uh, that absolutely free. Um, so that's a great way of, of, you know, kicking it off, um, using it, you know, on a longer term basis. So check out balsamic right so today i want to start off by talking in our series on conversion rate optimization talking about a little bit about the the post click experience so what happens when you eventually um persuade somebody to complete your call to action so they've added something to a shopping basket or they've started the form filling that they've got to do to submit whatever to you, or they've signed up for your app, or whatever it is. That post-click experience is as important as the actual initial click. There is a damn good reason why people um, uh, routinely abandon shopping carts. And that's because the, the shopping cart and checkout process often isn't as optimized as it could be. And you see the same thing in all kinds of sites, from making a donation on a charity site to um, you know, onboarding on an app, that's whatever it may be. The, 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 uh, the donation that? on a charity site. Um, you've, you've got this wonderful uh, website that's beautifully designed and the copy's great and it, it encourages you to click on... Uh, you know, click to make a donation, and then you go through to some third-party um, app that might have yeah. a logo on it. It's different URL, yeah, uh, and it's just generally hideous. So, yeah, yes, perfect example, absolutely. And it's you know, it's not surprising that something like only eighteen percent of people they hit a donation process. In other words, they've already expressed a desire to donate. Only eighteen percent of those people will then finish that donation process. Mm. Um, you know, and I think that kind of says it all, doesn't it, really? And the same is true with shopping basket on e-commerce sites and all the rest of it. So what do you do to help people? Well, the first thing is to provide positive feedback, okay? So um, one of the kind of things that we're taught and, I, I, and something that I'm actually going to refer to later is, well, let's start with that. The first thing that you're taught when it comes to these post-click experiences is you remove distractions, right? So if you go into Amazon and you start checking out, suddenly all the, the other options disappear. It's very much focused down on what you're doing. That is 100% right. Um, and I have seen too many people using that post-click experience as an opportunity to start getting people to do other things. So, for example, um, yeah, oh, you're checking out on this website. Create a password so you can, you know, come back later. <laughs> and it's like, no, people just want to finish what they're doing. At the end of the process, sure, now ask them for a password. That's fine. Uh, or they're going through the process and they have their checkboxes. Oh, can we spam you with email? That's not the time to ask. Ask them at the end of the process. So picking, you know, making that a clean experience is absolutely vital. But that doesn't mean that 
when you strip all of that out, the one area where I make an exception to that is to take the time to provide people with positive feedback, to say to them at that point, your decision to start this process is worth doing and it's worth finishing. So that might be something as simple as actually thanking people. So, so, um, uh, as I've said many times before on this, this show, um, my company, Boag Works, um, supports a charity in India. All right. Um, which is a very small charity um, that supports uh, uh, education to, for people that are incredibly poor in, in these very rural parts of India. Now, I created their website and I, you know, all I had to work with was Squarespace. So, you know, it, it's a fairly basic website and you can see it for yourself if you want to um, Bethesda-project.org. Now, when someone clicks to, to say, I want to make a donation on that, what they're taken through to is a page that starts by thanking them, right? Well, they haven't yet done it. They haven't finished the donation process. But by acknowledging their, their desire to donate, you reinforce it and make it more likely that they complete that donation process, right? And it may seem like a stupid thing, but it actually works. And I can prove it works, right? There was a scientific study where um, there was an honesty jar in an office environment, right? And the people were supposed to put money in the honesty jar if they, um, uh, if they had a tea or coffee, okay? What they did, they started doing is one day, one week, they would put a picture of flowers above the honesty jar. And another week, they would put a picture of a pair of eyes looking at people, right? And when that pair of eyes is there, the honesty contribution shot through the roof, right? So in other words, when we are seen to do something, we carry on and finish doing it. Even if we're not really being seen, but just giving, being given the impression that we're being seen doing it. Like showing a pair of eyes or thanking people for their willingness to donate. So, so positive reinforcement like that works, but also there's the positive reinforcement with things like um, social proof or, um, you know, where you say things like, well, you know, you get a money back guarantee. So why not buy all of those kinds of things? Anything you can do to positively reinforce people. The other thing that you need to look at doing is providing people with a safety net during that post-click experience if something goes wrong. So make sure you've got a telephone number really obviously shown or a live chat facility or something like that in case people have a problem. Um, and don't feel that you need to um, get people to do everything in one go, right? So a lot of times you might need quite a lot of information for people. And so you create these bloody long forms that are really intimidating. Um, but actually, you're much better breaking it down into smaller steps, okay? Because people feel like to feel a sense of momentum, right? So you're much more likely for them to keep persevering if they're kind of moving on to the next thing, moving on to the next thing, moving on to the next thing, rather than getting stuck on one big thing. So often breaking it down like that works very well. And then obviously a big part of any post-click experience is getting that um, uh, um, form design right. So all of those principles around good form design are hugely important as well. Now, there have been entire books written on form design, so I'm not going to begin to try and talk about all of, you know, all of that now. But there are a few, few things to, to, to mention. For a start, have really good defaults. 
So, for example, if your post-click call to action um, involves people specifying um, uh, a country that they want it delivered to, right? And you know that 80% of people are, uh, are ordering from the United Kingdom. Please make sure that drop-down list defaults to the United Kingdom. Don't have it uh, defaulting to Angola because that's the first one on the list, right? And also, only have things in that drop-down list that actually are countries that you're going to deliver to. If Don't put Antarctic in your list just because you copied and pasted a country list. For anyway, I'm getting into... I'm getting off track now and just ranting about country drop down menus but that idea of having good defaults is a really good one it is. right yes then um <clears throat> make your forms forgiving as well so i went to a website once where i entered my postcode dt117pp you now know my postcode well done probably shouldn't have announced that on a podcast but there you go um so i typed that in and it didn't work right it said, your postcode is, you do, have not entered a valid postcode. So I typed it again, DT11 space 7PP. Still didn't work, right? And I went round and round, and, and then I typed it all in capitals, right? Still didn't work. I typed it all in capitals with a space in. Still didn't work, right? And the problem was, is it wanted it all in lowercase, Okay. But I was doing it on a mobile device that was automatically capitalizing the first letter, mm. right? So it didn't work. That is what I call an unforgiving form, <laughs> right? Don't make that kind of mistake. It, remove the spaces. If you want it in the database all nice and clean, remove the spaces at the back end. Don't force the user to do that. Don't split telephone numbers over multiple fields. Don't even split names over multiple fields. Do the work at the back end. Make it easy for the users. Another thing with form design, don't use multiple columns. Makes it much harder to scan. And don't have the label and then the field next to it. Um, instead, stack the, the label above the field. It's much easier to scan and it's much easier to navigate between fields that way. Um, don't forget to clearly distinguish between your um, optional fields and your required fields. Or even better, drop the optional fields. <laughs> Only have required fields. Um, Validate your form as it goes so that people don't get to the end, hit a button and then get all the errors thrown back to them at once. That's horribly intimidating and depressing. Instead, validate as they complete each field. Um, I had to and, do an Esther just... form recently, Paul. Um, my my yes. Esther ran out. That's a, that's a lovely one. That's the one where you have to kind of declare that you're not a, you know, a, a drug dealer or a terrorist. Yeah, terrorist and all this kind of thing. Yeah. But it's literally, every, it's, it's, I don't know, it might have seven pages every single one error and and then you have to hunt around for where the error was yes uh, absolutely i think they ju- so i just, think it's deliberate though i think they, they they enjoy it it's it's meant to make you feel well <laughs> there, there is actually an argument for it in certain situations because um what they're doing there is they're increasing um uh cognitive load right um by making the form hard to use yeah. and that means you're likely to make less mistakes yeah. right um so anyway that's beside the point uh, so yes so things like um validate as you go so when you validate as you go as well don't just 
go, you've got it wrong. Also put a little tick next to it if they've done it right. You know, positively reinforce them as well. Mm. And I could go on and on. I mean, people in the chat room are asking about what about labels that are within the field, like placeholder text. Yeah, placeholder text is fine, but not as a label. Use a placeholder text as an example of what they should be entering, not as the label that then disappears when they click in it. There's just all of these nuances. Form design is an incredibly... Um, it sounds really, really boring, but it's an area that I get really excited about because it's actually really challenging to get right. So, um, yeah, hugely exciting area. There's some great books out there as well that you should check out. But think about that post-click experience and how you optimize it. Spend as much time on that as you do on the main experience. Right. I think that's all I've got to say on that one. Oh, good stuff that was, Paul. I loved form design Thank as you. well because uh, obviously we work with a lot of charities. So... Yeah, um, charities, charities. Uh, getting getting their donation forms right, and it, it's something that continues as well. You think you've got it right, uh, but the mm. RFBF one, for example, that you did the kind of UX work on yes. years ago, has changed and changed and changed and changed. Yeah, keeps being refined. So that's and and that's that. That's why uh, what that signals is the value of A/B testing, mm-hmm. right? Because you know, uh, I, I I don't consider myself a thickie. You know, I've been doing this for a while. That that form that I designed all back then. That, ball, but I'll, I'll try. I know oh, that you resist it. Oh, that um, <laughs> that wireframe I did all the way back then. It was good. You know, I remember it still, and it was a, a good design, and I was really proud of it. Um, but nothing stands up against the reality of real users in a real situation. Exactly. So, you know, that's why these things will continue to evolve and change. Cool. Right. Talking of, of monitoring, evolving and changing. Oh, I'm proud of this segue. <laughs> Let's talk about full story, Ooh. right? Full story is the next generation of analytics. In my humble opinion, in my opinion, it's the, best analytics tool i've ever used right um because it kind of combines the 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 great um power of 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 statistical you know um large scale analytics with the ability to look at individual sessions as well so it's kind of got this page insights feature in it which is like a toolkit for you to learn everything you need to know about how users interact with a specific page on your site so it's got click maps so you can see a heat map um uh, you know, um, but without the kind of splodginess, I never did like that splodginess, you know, where it shows red and green and, and yellow. And it's like, oh, what's that mean? Red, red is good, I guess. But how good? Well, they have click maps, which are, are much more accurate. So you can see what, pe- what people have clicked on, how many people have clicked on it, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and you can look at rage clicks. You can look at errors. You can look at dead clicks. Um, whatever you fancy and if you see something interesting you can add it to your search and that allows you to to dig in even more then of course there's inspector mode where you can uh, watch and replay any any session and decide you know if you want to add a new button or text field to to you know clarify what you're doing Um, you can enter that inspect mode directly from search or from a click map or anywhere else 
Um, yeah, so it's so powerful. It, I, I really do love it as a tool. You can sign up today and get a free month of it, their pro account. No need to enter a credit card. You can continue using it even after that month up to a thousand sessions per month. But obviously, if you want to pay uh, for more sessions, you can absolutely do that. So you go to fullstory.com forward slash BOAG to try that out. So we have established how important testing is. Right, that was the last thing that came out of Marcus's mouth, and he has segued beautifully into the next part of what I want to talk about today, yeah. without even realising it, because he never reads the notes. Such a, so such I can pretty a much pro. Such a yeah, but are you? Or was it just luck? <laughs> of course, it was luck. I haven't got a clue. I didn't read the notes. No, no exactly. No, I'm glad you admitted it. <laughs> so, the, everybody bangs on. Oh, you should do testing, right? Um, but it's so easy to say, isn't it? And it's so hard to make a reality in projects, you know. Um, yeah, I, I know uh, the project that I've been working on uh, recently that that it, you know, it's going to be it's going to be hard to get them to test it. Um, and so some of the testing I've just done under the radar, but they really need to do some more as well. But often I find that if you you do a little bit yourself, if you experiment with testing and you just do, even even if it's not very accurate, not particularly good, if you just do it on your own dime in your own time, then it kind of gets them into that mode of thinking and they buy into it. Um, so instead of speculative design, try speculative testing, the future of the web. There you go. Well, you've come so, up with a new term, Paul. I came up with a new, I like I that. With a new term the other week. Oh, did you? What did you well, come up with? I think it's a new term. It probably isn't, and everyone's going to laugh at me. I, I, I coined the term research sprint, which... Uh, oh, no. No, that's, that sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. A research sprint. I like that. Yeah. It's better than a discovery phase. Yeah. Because the, the problem that I have with the discovery phase is it always sounds like, yeah, basically, we want you to pay us a lot of money for us to work out what the hell is going on. <laughs> You know, yeah. we've got no idea. Got the... So pay yeah. us while we we're work clueless. Out. <laughs> yeah. So we need a discovery phase, please. Yeah. yeah. So I prefer a research uh, a sprint. I like that. Anyway, so yes, testing. So what what type of testing could you do um, to get the ball, ball rolling? Right. Well, you can actually test right from the very beginning. So. So let's say you're, you're working on a fairly boring, typical project, right? So you don't get to work in an agile way and you don't get to do any of these kinds of things you, you, you know you're supposed to do, but you never really get to do. You've been asked to produce a design comp, right? To go into Photoshop, to go into Sketch and produce a design, okay? Well, if you get yourself into that kind of situation, you're inevitably going to end up in that conversation of, um, oh, I don't like the green. Can you change it to blue? And, and that kind of thing, right? So one piece of testing that you can do that will help with those kinds of aesthetic opinion type disagreements is something called a semantic differential test, right? Mm. Uh, or, or a semantic differential survey, which is a very, very pretentious way of describing a very, very simple idea, right? So what you do in this survey is you start, before you do any design, right at the beginning of a project, you get them to write a list of words that they want the design to communicate, right? Yep. Now, actually, Lee 
came up with a really good exercise to do that, which is a reception room exercise where you you get them to design a reception room, what the furniture looks like, what um, uh, you know, what the 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 um, the art is on the wall, what music is playing, and all that. And out of that will come a set of words like minimalistic or relaxing or those kinds yeah. of words, right? Clean, lots and of these sp- then- lots of space, yeah, yeah. So- yeah, yeah. But what we've learned over the years, we do that with every single client on every every single kickoff. Is what you're hunting for are the the different words, the kind of things because everybody says they want it to sort of be clean and airy and all all of that yeah. kind of stuff. But occasionally you'll get some gems that you really can, as a designer, can kind of pull uh, uh, you know pull into your process and make something that is slightly different to the competitors. Yeah, but even those those minimalistic and other words you need them as well from a testing point of view, um yeah. from a testing point of view so what you'll end up with is a big ass list of uh, uh, well, hopefully not too many because if you end up with too many it's like we want the design to be everything you know so a small list Prioritize of them. words a pro yeah well i don't care so much about the prioritizing but we, we, we take the top number i'm not saying you're not right about the prioritizing markers i'm just saying that from a testing purpose we want i don't know four or five six something like that number of words then what you do is you write their opposites right so minimalistic busy etc then what you might want to do is um throw in some some other random words right you know that you you're worried that you might end up going down this wrong line or whatever else you end up with a whole bunch of words then you do your design um what you do at this point is this is when you do a semantic differential survey. And all you do is you put up the design, you put those words underneath it, and, and ask as many people as you can which words represent the design. Now, if they select the words that the client said they wanted at the beginning, then the client suddenly has no reason to turn down your design because they personally don't like it. Yeah. Right? So that is a great way in to testing the idea of testing because it'll save you a lot of hassle right um and so you can take it on yourself and also that's not that difficult to do to throw something like that together and put it online it only takes a few minutes right once you've got that initial list equally once you produce that design comp there are a couple of other tests as well that you can do that are really really useful so you could do something called a first click test where you show them the design. I, this is what I did recently in the um, Slack channel when I had a design and I was unsure where people would click. I said to them, if you were going to do dot, 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 what would you click on? And I used a tool called Usability Lab um, where I put up the design. They click on the, the, the static design where they would, would next go. And if they click in the right place, if that would take them in the right direction, then you know that the design is working. Right. Because something like if eight, I think it's something like 86 percent of people who make their get their first click correct um, are likely to finish the task they're trying to complete. It's a, I can't remember the exact number, but let's say 86. That sounds good. Um, so there's first click test. Now, you can also do something called the snap test. Right. Where you show them the design for a few seconds and then you ask them what they remember about the design and what order they yeah you know, and note the order they remember it because that will give you an idea about the visual hierarchy of the page. Gosh, I haven't done one of those. You can also ages. ask ages. We used to, yeah. used to do those. 
Ooh. Yeah, they're really good. Mm. I still like them. The other thing is you can add some additional questions around that. So you can ask questions like, what was the site about to make sure you, that we communicate the key message very quickly? You know? Um, what, you know, what would you do next on the site? All of those kinds of things. So there's a huge amount of testing that you can do just with you know, a mock-up and asking a few people on social media. And that is so easy to do. You know, when I did it in the Slack room, um, yeah, they weren't target audience people, but with usability things like a first click test, that doesn't matter so much. You know, we, we all kind of struggle with the same things. And, and that immediately gave me something solid to take back to the client and reassured myself, to be honest, that the design was going in the right direction. So absolutely use that kind of approach wherever possible to get going. Then with things like information architecture, obviously, you can do things like um, card sorting um, is a really good exercise to do. We've talked about that loads on the show before. There's a great tool called Optimal Workshop that you can use, um, and their tool TreeJack, um, uh, which you can help to, to manage that kind of thing. But again, even if you just get a small group of people and sit down with them for a half an hour, um, it, you know, no, you're not going to end up with a full information architecture, but it's better than nothing. Something is better than nothing. Even a little bit of testing begins to establish it in the culture. Um, and then obviously you could do things like testing prototypes, um, where you do usability testing. Now we're getting a bit heavier, maybe a bit more work involved. But again, you can use a tool like lookback.io that allows you to do remote usability testing and even unfacilitated usability testing, which means that you don't have to, um, you know, sit while people do it. You set them a task and then watch the videos back afterwards. You can also use tools like usertesting.com who will actually source people for you um, that match your demographic. And it's another thing to say about Usability Lab that I mentioned. They will do the same thing. If you haven't got an audience, they can provide the audience. Now, obviously, they charge for that. Um, but, you know, again, that makes these things easier. And, and you can get results turned around very, very quickly. And then finally, once your site goes live, you should be doing ongoing testing like um, session recorders, like Full Story that I mentioned earlier, A-B testing, um, and multivariant testing using something like Google Optimize. So none of this needs to be really hard work. I think we make it much harder than it needs to be. All right. So um, that that's really all I wanted to say is just start doing something, even if it's not perfect. Yes, you'll hear all these people at conferences and stuff talking about, you know, uh, the, the amount of work that they put into doing user research and testing and how they've got these huge labs and two-way mirrors and, and you know, they get hire companies to, to hire, you know, to find exactly the right kind of participants. But if you're not Facebook, if you're not Google, if you're not Booking.com or Amazon or somebody like that, then just doing something is better than doing nothing, Right. And start with testing because it starts to build it into the culture of the organization. One thought from me. I've, yes. I've found with testing of, of some of the best and most valuable and useful testing I've done. And obviously this won't work for every client, but I'm thinking of uh, when we worked for Southampton General Hospital. I went round, clipboard in hand, and sort of tapped people on the shoulder. And sort of quick introduction, mm. sort of like, hi, I'm working with the communications department here, blah, 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 blah. Can you give me five minutes of your time? That was some of the most useful feedback I've ever got. Yep. 
So, and, and, yeah. And even though you, you do feel a bit embarrassed with the first one or two, you just get into it after a while. Uh, and yeah. it's, yeah, and it was just a, a simple process. So, that's a uh, universities are great for that because you've got people, you've got your target audience yeah. wandering around outside the door. Exactly. Uh, and, and that's always the, the, the big challenge is often getting at the target audience. Mm. So the technique that I tend to use is don't use the target audience, right? Um, this is naughty of me. Um, I don't, you know, I'll try and then I'll meet resistance, right? So then I'll go and use anybody, basically, anybody outside of the company who doesn't know the project. Um, and I use them for usability testing because most, I mean, usability testing in particular, most people are struggling with the same problems, right? Yep. Then eventually, I, 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 but I will use it with other types of testing like card sorting and um, aesthetics. Now, in those cases, it is more important to have the correct target audience. But if I don't have the correct target audience, I'll use anybody. What then happens is somebody will turn around and say, right, yes, but you weren't using the right audience. And I'll say, absolutely, we weren't. So let's use the right audience and do it again. And it's kind of by by using the wrong audience, you get people to criticize it. And that gives you the impetus then to use the right audience, which is very devious of me. (laughs) I'm not a devious person normally, but that does work, actually. So anyway, there we go. That's that subject. So, Marcus, do you have a joke to um, to, to to finish us off I on? I do. Um, every joke for the rest of the series is going to be from Paul Edwards, so thanks, Paul. Well, I say that. I'm, I might get a better one in between now and then, but at the moment, that's how it's going to be. So, went to the circus at the weekend. One of the acts kept doing backflips and then offering us updates. Turns out they were Adobe acrobats. Oh, <laughs> ow, bird! <Yeah. laughs> I'm just repeating oh, well, what is in front of me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have to say, mine a very justifiable uh, bird. <laughs> it wouldn't be so problem if they if they just did the updates invisibly in the background. That'd be kind of fine. It's the notifications. It's like, oh, don't ask me. Just, it, just let me set a, a kind of some rules. You know update in the middle of the night or you know only update if it's a critical security bug or whatever and then just leave me alone yeah anyway it was like windows used to be like that i imagine it still is yeah is it i don't know no it's not it's much better now much better every every time you turn the machine on uh, you've got three critical updates and and it'll be it never told you how long it was usually 20 minutes you know yeah. Oh, Windows. Yeah. Paul says Windows is a happy place these days. Oh, it is actually. They've come a long way. Uh, the trouble with us Mac users is we we judge Windows by you know the last time we used it, which would have been yeah. probably fifteen years ago in my what case. Was, so what was the operating you know. system? There was one. Yeah, XP obviously was a famous one. Uh, I, I, yeah, I can remember three point one. Uh, going back to the chat room here, but no, they had one that had a name. That was awful. Vista. Was it Vista? Vista? Yeah, it could have been. Or there was yeah. also Windu- Windows ME was a particularly bad one as well, as I remember. That. Anyway, yeah. So, but they learned their lessons. XP, I thought, was a pretty solid um, operating system yeah. uh, for its time, you know. But um, as for 3.1, no, I'm sorry. 3.1, that was before um, multitasking, as I remember. We're, we're, getting, we're doing, we're, we're going, doing the nostalgia old man thing again now, aren't we? <laughs> and talking to the so on that note, I think we'll wrap the show up. 
Thank you very much for listening, guys, and we will talk to you again next week. Bye-bye. Bye, Bradshaw.